Because it'll be around for about two more weeks, okay? <laughs> uh, it's good to be uh, it's good to be back. Some of you know, Sarah and I took some time to to get away and refresh and uh, to uh, relax a little bit and enjoy the Lord in a different setting and environment. And we got the opportunity to do a bunch of reading and I got caught up in a couple things I'm trying to get done reading and was able to read a couple other uh, books that I wanted to, to get to and so God was good and and uh, but I've missed preaching. <laughs> I enjoy preaching. I enjoy sharing the word with you guys and uh, I enjoy being, I enjoy worshiping with you guys and and uh, so it's, it's definitely good to, to be back up here and and anxious to share the word, and, but I also have to say I, I was encouraged as I was getting ready to leave town, and and uh, thought, what all did I have to do? Like trying to make sure I got everything kind of prepared around here so that I could leave and and be gone for a week, and and I thought, wow, I've, other than asking Rusty to preach, I, I really didn't have to do a whole lot, and I was encouraged by that because that what that meant was uh, and. What God reminded me of that moment is that, you know, we have so many faithful people that are, that uh, just make up Renovation Church and doing their thing and doing their serving and opportunities and things and and, uh, and that this doesn't depend on me. Uh, and that's a good thing. It doesn't need to depend on the preacher or the pastor. Uh, certainly has a role in that, but uh, but I was... I was certainly encouraged by that, so I just want to, to say thank you. Um, as we begin Numbers, I'm sorry, as we finish up Numbers this week, but as we begin it for today, I wonder if, as we think through the book of Numbers, that we, if we could sing the phrase, How Sweet the Sound of Saving Grace. I wonder if we could see that. I wonder if we do see that as we see God work in the book of Numbers. And we ask how sweet the sound of saving grace and we declare in chapters 4 and chapters 5 and chapters 6 and 7, 8, 9, 10 through chapter 36 that we would say, how sweet the sound of saving grace. You see, uh, the Old Testament was not God's first plan and that went wrong and then Jesus comes along, but it has been God's plan all along that Jesus would come. And the Old Testament just simply prepares the way, paints the picture, sets the stage for the sweet sound of saving grace in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so I hope that as we, as we work through this book today, as we, again, we're just overviewing the, really the second half of the book of Numbers, so we're really kind of tackling today chapters 17 through 36. So we're just going to go super quick, which as you guys know, as many of you know anyways, that's not our typical mode of operation. It, typically it is verse, you know, verse two or three verses at a time and kind of camp out there forever. Um, but we are trying to overview more quickly the first five books of the Old Testament. 
And I just want to remind us that as we begin working through this this morning, that we look for in the story, in the pages of Numbers, how sweet the sound of saving grace. So let me get our minds kind of going down the path that we're going to go down this morning, the journey we're going to take this morning. With this phrase, you guys familiar with the phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Anybody familiar with that phrase, right? Everyone, pretty much? Okay, good. If not, come out from underneath the rock. Uh, When the going gets tough, the tough get going. But what's interesting, and and this is just an observation, but when the going gets tough, the typical Christian gets going. And what I mean by that is I don't mean like he picks himself up by his bootstraps and and he starts doing good, even though that may not, be, may, be, may not be the right thing either. The typical Christian says, well, I don't want to be a part of it. As in gets going, as in moves along the way and moves on from whatever tough situation that he or she finds himself in. What I mean is that when life gets tough, the typical Christian begins to take off. At least the Christian that we would probably all be familiar with in our culture and in our day and in the churches that we've spent time in and maybe even in this place here. Let me give you some examples. Maybe in marriage, when, this, when the spouse gets hard to deal with, the typical Christian, at least statistics say, at least 50% of them, doesn't stick around. They just get going. They move on. At work, when the boss is pushing you harder than you like or has an attitude that you don't appreciate, the typical Christian doesn't seek to bring redemption to work. Instead, they just get going. When can I find that new job? Where can I find this opportunity to have peace in my job when we realize the peace was there all along? It just wasn't in your job. It was in your Jesus. Maybe another example. In the church, when the pastor says something I don't like or leads in a way that ruffles my feathers or maybe another lay person offends me, a typical Christian doesn't seek to persevere with the people As if God has called him or her there. He gets going to another church as if the church is just an item from the store with an unlimited exchange policy. I can just return it. I can exchange it for something different. Last week, as Rusty walked us through the first half of the book of Numbers, we saw that God continues and continues to prepare his people. To prepare them. Prepare them for what? Prepare them to be His people. Prepare them to live in His place. Prepare them to live underneath of His rulership and His grace and His love. But realize, as as we've talked last week and even this week, the story's just getting started. I understand that. Like Chronologically, the, the story on the timeline's Life's just getting started for God's people. We're only four books in. Now, I understand hundreds and hundreds of years have passed, but, but it's still just the beginning. They haven't even entered the promised land yet. But as God continues to work, his mo- work among His people, what do His people continue to do time after time after time? They begin to distrust God. I don't, we don't trust you, God. Of course, that leads to rebellion and such, but how do, they, how do they show their distrust in God? They do this by complaining. There are countless examples of complaining by God's people. 
complaining about God, complaining about God's leaders. There's rebellion, just outright rebellion by God's people. Saying, no, we don't want to do that. We will not do that. So what is the result? The result is that God punishes and disciplines His people. Sometimes that means sending a plague that kills 3,000 of them to teach the rest of them a lesson. Now this week, this week, we will see a grand display of rebellion. And we will see an equal display in discipline for God's people. But the beauty of this picture is that we will see, unlike us, and that when time gets tough, we get going. Instead, in time that is very tough and tragic, God perseveres with His people. He continues with His people. When the tough gets going, God stays and perseveres. When Adam and Eve failed to trust God, God persevered. God could have simply abandoned His people, and He had every right to do. Do you see that? God could have walked away from this story a whole lot sooner than the book of Numbers. But instead, God continues as He said He would. The The book of Numbers is nothing short of a story about tragedy. Nothing short. And I don't think it's good preaching, I don't think it's honest preaching, I don't think it's helpful preaching to take the book of Numbers and talk about it as if it's some some beautiful thing. No, it's tragic. It's tragic. But what's beautiful, and when we understand the tragedy of the book of Numbers, we also understand that the book of Numbers is a book of hope. That in the midst of tragedy, God is still king, and God will still persevere through His people's rebellion. God will continue the task that He set out to do, regardless of the rebellion or the goodness of His people. So kind of the main thought for today is that as the going gets tough, God perseveres with His people. And I hope that you'll find encouragement in this today. That even as life is tough, whether that's by trials caused from outside sources or just trials caused by sin in our own life, as it gets tough, God continues to persevere with His people. Again, Numbers is riddled with tragedy. The people continue to distrust God. I mean, think about this with me. Now, again, we're not going to go back and read a bunch of numbers. I'm assuming that, that, uh, that you've read a good bit of this or, or even all of it. But the story here, if I can unpack it a little bit, they walk all the way to the promised land now. Again, we, Rusty covered the first half, and they walk all the way to the promised land underneath God's supernatural care, His supernatural guidance and direction, and upon seeing the land, they rebel. They finally have arrived at the promised land, what they've been journeying to for a long time, what they were promised hundreds of years ahead of that. They were promised this land, and they get there, and they say no. 
Now let me, let me set this up for you. God sent, think about this, they were in Egypt, and we're, we're only going back just a short period of time, not even talking about their people's history for hundreds of years and what God had done. Let's just go back to Egypt. God sent disastrous plagues to kill their slave masters, to kill their sons, to set them free. God sends these things, these plagues, this the Passover, the, the death angel, all those things to set them free. I mean, what a miraculous event. Then God walked them through the middle of a sea and let the sea open up and then, and then close back when it was just the right time. To, to, again, continuing to set them free, to move them forward. Then God meets with their leader at Mount Sinai. He gives them His laws, His covenant, His, his instructions. His guidance for His people. He now has walked with them, providing everything they needed to survive. Bread and water. And let me remind you that God has promised them and reminded them of the promise that He would give them the land that they were headed to. Then they get to the gate of their destination. They see some people that they feel that they that they see that seem like they could not overcome or overtake and they say this is what they're saying god cannot be trusted their no we will not go into the land equals no god you cannot be trusted i mean you see that in the the disastrous statement of we'd be better off in egypt they're saying God will not do as He said He will do. There is no way. We cannot have this land. God's promise is false. He cannot do this. This is what's going on at the gate of the promised land. It's not just simply, oh, well, they just don't have enough courage to enter the promised land. Or, or maybe they need to go sharpen their knives a little bit better and, and then they can enter. No, they're saying, God, you cannot be trusted. You, you have led us all this way and there's no way. Now in response to that, because of their lack of faith, God sends them to the desert where an entire generation will die and never see the promised land. Now that's tragedy. That's tragedy. And I think the more you know the story, and the more you know the ins and outs and the details of what's going on, the more the tragedy just makes sense. The more the tragedy uh, grows in your mind and your understanding. But where the hope comes in is that at that moment, they say, no, we as a people will not enter the promised land. At that point, God could have said, to hell with them all, that is what they deserve. It's a good thing I'm not gone, because it's probably what I would have done. God could have rightfully said that. But what does He do? I mean, see the grace, even in, in the... The, the punishment to enter the wilderness. It's not, I'm going to wipe out all of my people. It's just, I'm going to wipe out the generation that I removed from Egypt, that I was leading all the way here. They don't have eyes to believe and hearts to have faith. I'm going to wipe them out. And then, what is left of my people, I will do something great with them. 
Now pause. Let's pause for just a moment. <clears throat> so God perseveres. Let's think about this. God perseveres with the people that He has chosen despite their rebellion and their lack of trust. Now, I want to pause for just a moment, and I want you to ask yourself, as you live life, okay, as you live each day, as you go to work, as you live in your family, as you, as you live each day with your spouse, as, as you do what God has called you to do, do you see your lack of trust in those various areas of your life, whether that's with finances, with your job, with your spouse, with your kids, whatever it is, do you see that lack of trust as an act of rebellion? Do you see that? Because I think for many of us, we, oh, I don't trust God, and okay, well, I just need to trust God, and, and, and life will be better. No, do we see our lack of trust as an act of rebellion? We see our lack of trust, yes, certainly leads to rebellion. It leads to sin. But do we see the very act of lacking in trust in God as rebellion? Because do we understand what we're saying? When I say, I don't trust you, God, what are you saying? You're saying maybe God is not powerful enough to handle the situation that you don't trust him with. Or maybe you're saying, I don't trust that you have my good in mind. Or maybe I don't trust that you have the wisdom to discern the situation. But do we see our lack of trust as an act of rebellion, as something that must be repented of? I would say majority of sin comes down to something we're not trusting about God. Something that we're not believing to be true about God. Maybe when you say, God, I, I have to have control of this situation because I can't trust you to do it. So I have to set up my law, my, I have to bring in my control arms and make sure everything happens exactly the way because God, I can't trust you to do that. The thing is, most of us are not walking around saying those words in our minds, we're just saying them with our actions and silently with our hearts. Maybe it's when we say, God, I can't trust you with these leaders that you've put in my life, whether that's a manager at work or, or leaders at the church or leaders even necessarily in government. Or maybe a lack of trust shows itself when I, when I have to find rest in mind-numbing television because I don't trust in God's rest. Now those are just some random examples, but maybe help you thinking how... How am I displaying a lack of trust? And how can I see that as an act of rebellion? God's people walk up to the thing and say, God, we don't trust you that this is your plan, that this is going to happen, that your promises will take place. And what does he do? Does he say, oh, 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 just have more trust? Is that what God does at the gate of the promised land in Numbers? Oh, guys, just have more trust in me, and everything will be better. And we'll walk in there, and we'll take these people. What does he do? He banishes them to the wilderness where an entire generation will be killed, will die, will never see the promised land because of their lack of trust. So I want to hope, hope, help, hopefully we see the profoundness and the audacity of us, people, myself included, to say, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you with this in my life. I don't trust you with this in my life. I don't trust you with this in my life. 
And I was having a conversation with my, with my mom the other day at the park about the salvation of my kids. Like, do I trust that with God? I hope so. I think so. So, as we think of God, God's people, how does God, how does God persevere with his people? How does God persevere? That's the question we're going to answer the rest of the time this morning. How does God persevere? So if we see as the going gets tough, God perseveres with his people. Now we're going to ask the question, how does God persevere with his people? How do we see this particularly in the book of Numbers? How does God persevere with his people? The first way in which we see God persevere with his people in the book of Numbers is that God continues to provide instruction for the priests and for the purity of the people. God continues to to provide instruction. So even when they rebel, what does God do? He provides instruction. He provides for the priests and for the purity of the people. What's He doing? If you remember from house gathering this past week, we, we talked about the discipline of God, that how God disciplines His children and those whom He loves and how He does that, and we worked through some of that. But, but this is what God, God continues to do that. God continues to discipline His people. If God was saying to hell with them, then the discipline would stop. The instruction and guidance would stop. So here we are. Where we're at in the book of Numbers, chapter 18. We're after the rebellion to enter the promised land. Now let's see what happens. Again, we're not going to go back and read all these texts. Matter of fact, we're not, not going to read very many at all. But Numbers 18, what happens in Numbers 18? God gives more instructions concerning the offerings and the duties of the priest. More instructions come. More guidance comes to God's people. He continues to help them have a relationship with Him. God continues to show His people how to walk along His side. Now is that what you do to someone you hate or have said to the hell with, right? You don't do that. That's what you do with someone that you love. You say, here, let me help you in relationship with me. It's what you do with your kids, right? You say, here, let me help you. I know you messed up, but let me help you walk alongside of me. Numbers 19, chapter 19. Purity is still a driving force in the heart of God. He cares, he continues to care about the purity of his people. He continues to teach the leaders of his people what faithfulness means. Especially how a man should take responsibility for himself and his word and his household. This is what we see again in the chapter of Numbers 19. He continues to teach his people what faithfulness means. Now let me remind us something here. At this point in the game, the people do not necessarily get it at this point. They're not necessarily just clicking away perfectly as God's people at this point. They do not simply start obeying God after, after they get their rebellion out of their system. right? So they, they don't go to the gate of the promised land and go, alright God, no way. And then all of a sudden, now that they've gotten that out of their system, they begin to obey God. That's not what happens. You know, I think many of us, even in here, have given ourselves over to the lie that if I just give in to my sin, 
this time, then I will be free to move on next time. So if I just be undisciplined today and waste today, then tomorrow I'll be ready to live faithfully to God. Or if I'm just selfish on this matter today, then tomorrow I can start putting others before myself. Understand that sin is never conquered by indulging in it. It's not what happens with God's people. They don't just get it now. They indulge in their sin of refusing to trust God and enter into the promised land. And it doesn't just all start clicking now. But God, again, continues to persevere with His people. God continues to provide discipline and training to ensure the people's race, as we talked about before. Not ethnicity and that kind of race, but race as in the the journey that they're on. God provides us instruction to continue the people's walk with Him. Notice that as God's peoples rebel, He instructs, He disciplines. I want to encourage us here, just an application of this to us today. There's two parts of how the Word of God works in our lives today. There's two kind of broad, broad ministries of the Word, if, if you will. Uh, this is a little different than what we talked about in house gathering as far as like the Word and how it's involved in discipline. You know, we were talking about uh, Timothy 3.16 and how Scripture is useful for teaching, preaching, reproof. So there's like, there's a teaching and instruction part of Scripture, and then there's a correction and rebuke part of Scripture. So like a corrective and then like a formative, right? That's not what I'm talking about here. I think there's two, uh, I think that stands true, but, but this, we're talking about, I think there's, how does God discipline and instruct and guide His people today? What does that look like today? So there's two parts to this. We're not going to spend long on this, but just want to encourage you this way. Public ministry being one of the ways in which the Word is used to encourage us today, to move us, to discipline us today. The, the public ministry of the Word would be what we would also call as like preaching, teaching. This be called the public ministry of the Word, what we're, we have been doing for the past however many minutes and will continue to do for the next however many minutes. It's the public ministry of the Word. But what tends to get neglected in churches is the private ministry of the Word. Yeah, that's going to be corrective, but it's also going to be formative. So that's why I'm saying this is different than the formative corrective thing we talked about in House Gallery. It's the private ministry of the Word can be corrective and formative. But it's in this private ministry where we go to each other with the Word of God and challenge each other in our journeys and encourage each other. This is one of the ways that God has ordained for us as His people to continue receiving instruction and moving forward in our journeys. I want to read to you a quote from um, Dr. Paul Tripp on this very thing. He says, The ministry of corrective discipline, which when he says corrective, what he's referring to really is private ministry of the Word, the going one to another, The ministry of corrective discipline takes the general truths that everyone has been hearing from the public teaching of the Word and applies them with specificity to the lives of individual believers 
so that they can more concretely understand what it means to live in light of the things they're being taught. Public teaching of the Word looks to private ministry to counsel people into understanding the specific, practical life implications of what they have been learning as the Word has been taught publicly. So it is private ministry of the Word that takes what's being taught publicly, and that's where we help each other take this Word, what we're being taught, and apply that with specificity to our lives. That's where we work out the implications of that. That's where we think through, hey, brother, this is not measuring up to the word we've been talking about. Let me encourage your heart and your soul. Or, hey, brother, you are living this out. Be encouraged. But it's where we take the word and and we give it specificity to each other's lives. Because, as you know, I try to, when we preach, I try to give examples of, well, you could not be trusting God in this way. Or you could not be trusting God in this way. And we do that, try to make kind of broad, sweeping generalizations when I do that. Uh, and it might hit one or two or three of us in this room. But what has to happen is we have to take the Word and not trusting only ourselves. And we have to take the Word and go, how does this apply to me with specificity? What area, what, what detail of my life is the Word, should the Word be applied to? And the I would, say, I would encourage you guys that many of us trust ourselves to do that way too much. We trust in ourselves exclusively to apply the word to ourselves way too much. And you say, whoa, 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 man, you're pushing me on that one. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another once a year, as long as it's called this year. What's he say? But exhort one another every day, so long as it's called today. So that all of you will have a bliss life. No, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, take care, brothers. Let the implicate, what he's implying here is that you all have evil hearts, evil, unbelieving hearts, and they're going to lead you to fall away from the living God. It's an assumed thing. This is, this is going to happen. What do you need? What, what, so, so what do we do? We exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today. Why? So that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, does he say this? But exhort yourself and remind yourself and you'll be good. No, he says we exhort one another. Like as I was reading the book where part of this, uh, the, the quote comes from Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp, he reminds us that too many of us believe that we see ourselves more accurately than anybody else could ever see us. And the reality is that we probably don't. That's why we need each other. Is if you're not involved in 
regular exhortation from the body of Christ in which you belong, then the warning of Hebrews is this. Your evil, unbelieving heart is active in leading you away from the living God, and you will eventually fall into the deceitfulness of your sin. That's what will happen. If you're not involved in active exhortation, regular exhortation, he says every day. I don't know that we need to take that literally as I have to have exhortation in my life every single day, but it certainly means more than once a year, and he certainly means more than once a month. Regular. Now, if you want to take it literally as every day, then that's probably the better place to err. He says, if you're, if you're not, then your unbelieving heart is active and leading. It will lead you away from the living God. So God perseveres with His people by continuing to instruct and discipline His people. He continues to do the same thing today through the local body. Because of our evil hearts, He has given us brothers and sisters to exhort each other daily. I want you to ask yourself this question. When was the last time that you asked from someone in the body of which you are a part, that you're communing with and worshiping the God that we call Jesus every day. When was the last time you asked someone to exhort you? Hey, would you speak truth into my life? Hey, I'm struggling with this particular issue. Would you share the truth of God's word with me on this situation? And it's one of the joys Rusty and I get to have. We get to do that. If, if, if it's not happening, then it's likely, and not that you can't receive, I want to encourage you, not that you can't receive exhortation outside of the local body, but it certainly should be taking place, at least in here, if you're a hand of this body or a foot of this body then your exhortation should be coming to and from and here. It doesn't mean it can't be augmented outside. But if this is not happening, you're probably missing out on the continuing discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, as we continue, not only does God persevere with the people by giving them further instruction for purity, because remember, we're asking this question, how is God persevering with His people? He also remains gracious to them despite their continued sin. So God remains gracious with His people despite their continued sin. Number 17, if you're writing down some notes, the people misrepresent God in number 17. I'm going to read you 12 through 13. It says this, And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? They misrepresent God at this point. Go back, you say the context. Guys, Satan does the same thing, does he not, in the garden? No, God won't really do that. They're doing the same thing here. No, God's not going to protect us. We're all going to perish. They misrepresent God. Satan does the same thing, twists God's words. So again, this is just another example of continued sin. But Numbers 20 Let's talk about God's leaders for a moment as we think through the book of Numbers here. We see in Numbers that this grand display of leadership we call Moses 
is not quite so perfect. What happens? Moses, in anger, I remember the story. What's he do in anger? He disobeys God by striking the rock versus simply speaking to the rock. Now think about this. Think about this with me for a second. God promises that Moses will not get to see the promised land along with the generation that did not trust God in giving them the promised land. Imagine, imagine that. The people see the promised land but rebel against God saying that they won't go in. Moses, in getting water from a rock, strikes it in anger instead of speaking and he gets the same punishment. I mean, Moses is standing at the, at the promised land saying, let's go. But he ends up with the same punishment as those people because of the way he deals with this rock and water. I just want to remind us at this point that leaders are judged by a stricter judgment. And I, and I hope that's encouraging to you. It's not super encouraging to me, uh, but uh, uh, nor Rusty or any other leaders around here. <coughs> but, I mean, there's implications for that for you as followers that God will handle, uh, hand out a stricter judgment doesn't mean you get off the hook, but he will hand out a stricter judgment. Now, I want us to notice something. As we work through numbers here, notice at this point that even with Moses' sin, right? So it's clearly sin, rebellious, but even with Moses' sin, he is still God's man. You see that? Even though Moses messes up, sins even, he is still God's Man, there's great lessons for us to learn when it comes to God's leadership. I want you to understand, your elders, your leaders here, not just Rusty and I, but other leaders, are not going to be perfect all the time. Now, barring no unrepentant sin, no major moral failure, no major ethical failure, no false teaching of doctrine, if, I mean, those things are kind of accepted, but if those don't happen, you know, if there's repentance of sin and and so they're still God's leaders. You can trust them because you can trust God. Not because I'm the most trustworthy person in the world, but because God is good. Because God is trustworthy. So what happened? Because I, I want you to see this in the picture. What happens? After Moses' failure, after Moses' sin, what happened? The people continue or begin to complain once again about Moses. And what does God do? Anybody remember the story? What's God send? The venomous snakes, right? So you don't want to follow my man, I will send you venomous snakes. Now as your leaders lead in this body, I want you to remember that they are God's man. As Rusty leads, he is God's man. They will not be perfect. We will sin I just want to remind us that from the text. Now, as we continue on through Numbers 21, what's beautiful here is that God, in response, sends the venomous snakes, okay? What, what does He do in the midst of the venomous snakes? He offers a way of salvation for His people, right? I, this is the grandeur of this story. 
Guys, as they were being killed by these snakes, the people of God being punished by the, the venomous snakes, if they would only look upon the serpent that was on the pole that God instructed Moses to do, if they would just look upon that, they would be saved. To look upon that. What, what was it? It was just, okay, well, I'm just, I want to be saved by, if I just cast my eyes. No, it was, a, it was a matter of faith. Like, if I believe, I look upon, like the looking upon that was the act of faith that God would save me from these venomous snakes. So in the midst of this, God offers salvation for His people. Numbers 21. And then we get to Numbers 25. And the Israelite men indulge in immorality and idolatry, which the Lord again responds with a plague. But then God again is gracious as He finishes out the removal of the rest of the Egyptian generation and brings the wandering in the wilderness to an end. To see God's graciousness among the rebellion of His people So even as they rebel against him and his leaders, he sends the plague with the snakes, but then God shows salvation and gives them a way, a means to be saved from death by snake. (laughs) See God's graciousness amidst the continued rebellion of his people. So the next way in which we see God persevere with his people is that God gives his people a second chance. God gives His people a second chance. Numbers 14. What happens in Numbers 14? Basically, the people refuse to enter the promised land, and then God commands them to go back to where they came from. Can you believe such a thing? Right? I mean, again, the tragedy of the event. God does all of this work to bring them out of Egypt. Go back to wandering. Go back. Then Numbers 20 comes along. The people set out from Kadesh, where they basically have been walking in circles for 40 years. And as they're walking, they encounter battles along the way. What happens now is that God's people begin to win. They begin to hit this battle, and they, they win. Then Numbers 21, they fight and beat the Canaanites for the first time. The Canaanites, remember, are those who, some of the people who are inhabiting the land of Canaan. And there's more victories to come for God's people. Again, lots of other things happening, but then Numbers 27, during the journey, we see God's leadership pass from Moses to Aaron. So what does God do for His people? He doesn't just say, all right, I'm just going to leave you hanging because Moses messed up. I'm sorry, Joshua. Yeah, it says Joshua in my, my notes. Uh, Rusty Zach. Yeah, it says Joshua. Uh, <laughs> God doesn't just say, all right, you're just going to be leaderless. No one's there going to be there to guide you and direct you. What's he say? I'm going to give you a leader. It's going to be Joshua. He's not a part of that generation that rebelled against me at the gates to the promised land. Instead, he will lead you. And lastly, we see the perseverance of God as He leads them once again back to the promised land. He leads them to the promised land. It's kind of like deja vu, right? Like, haven't we been here before? Yeah, we've been here before. Matter of fact, we've been here before a number of times. Adam and Eve 
were there. Numbers 32, what happens? The first tribes settle just east of the promised land. Numbers 34, God gives the people instructions for assigning land to the Israelite tribes in Canaan. Numbers 35, God instructs them to set aside special cities for certain purposes. Again, what is God doing? God is guiding, directing His people. Numbers 36, God gives instructions for how land will remain within each tribe. Now at the end of Numbers, the Israelites make it all the way to the entry of the promised land, but they do not make it in. They make it all the way to the entry, all the way back. And this was not without fight, not without struggle, not without trust. And I want you to see that God will not be detoured by His plan, or His plan will not be detoured even by the rebellion of His people. I mean, think about that. Think about God's plan for your life. Will He be detoured even by your rebellion tomorrow? Uh-uh. By your rebellious sin tomorrow, will He be detoured by completing the work that He began in your life? No, He will not be. Guys, if He can do this here, man, He can certainly do this in our lives. This is just, again, that's just an implication of what's going on here. Like, think about that for just a moment. Look at the picture being painted. God is mighty and holy. God carefully prepares His people. God is the punisher of all rebellion against Him. But God perseveres in mercy. How can that be? I would encourage us. Many of us don't understand God's mercy because that's all we want to see is God's mercy. But God's mercy is meaningless without His justice. We have to understand His justice and understand His mercy. What are, what are we, is He being merciful with and showing us mercy and saving us from? So the message of Numbers is that God graciously perseveres with His people as He prepares them to be His people even despite their rebellion. I want to show us something in the New Testament. There's a couple different, Paul and Jesus both refer to the story, couple, uh, the book of Numbers. The one we're going to look at is just Jesus with Nicodemus. If you remember the story of Nicodemus, I'm not going to recount that story for sake of time. But Jesus refers to the story of Moses and the people complaining about Moses. That's the story that Jesus refers to when he's talking to Nicodemus. He refers to the story where God sends the venomous snakes. And in the midst of the plague, God offers salvation by means of looking upon the serpent on the pool. Jesus uses the story, think about this, Jesus uses the story with Nicodemus to describe how his own death on the cross will publicly proclaim the way of salvation for all who look and believe. You see the picture that God's painting in the midst of the book of Numbers, in the midst of tragedy? The picture he paints of telling Moses to, to put this up on a pole and raise it up so the people can look up to it. There's no mistake that our Savior was nailed to a cross and lifted up publicly that we could look to him for salvation. Jesus uses the story 
with Nicodemus to describe how his own death will publicly proclaim the way of salvation for all who look and believe. John 3, 14-15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Wow. God has provided Christ as the rescue for our sins. How can God be merciful? Because He's displayed His justice on Jesus. Christ was lifted up so that all we need to do is look and live. Respond with faith to God's word of promise that that those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ and trust in Him would be saved. What are we saved from? Anybody have a venomous snake about ready to snap at their ankle? Yeah, it's your lust. It's your lack of trust. It's your idolatry. It's your self-worship. It's your kids' worship. And yes, they all lead to death and destruction. And yes, just because you prayed a prayer, it still could lead to death and destruction. But He came and became sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, I, I want to ask you, do you realize that for those who do not believe in Jesus, I'm sorry, for those who do believe in Jesus and now follow Him, that God perseveres in displaying His grace and mercy to them. But for those who are not followers of Christ, God perseveres with you as well, but it's in showing you His wrath and His, mer- His, His justice. He perseveres in both places. The beauty of that is that God in His great mercy sent His Son Jesus to live the life that you couldn't live, I couldn't live, and pay the price for your sins and mine. Jesus came to rescue you, rescue me from worshiping anything else but God and from the destruction that that leads to. And all we need to do is throw ourselves at the mercy of God and repent for our sin and trust in Him. That because Jesus and His perseverance in the faith and we might turn to Him and trust. Now, Christians, let me ask you this. When the going gets tough, when trials set in, when sin seems to abound all the more, when you cannot overcome sin, you cannot overcome that part of your life or your sin, and you see the sin, or, or maybe you walk in deceitfulness that you don't have any sin, but, but you see this, the, the question is, is, Does God get going with you or does God persevere with you? Does God leave and abandon you or does God persevere with you? You can trust that God can and will continue to persevere with you. Now, as we come to conclusion here, I have two implications in light of the book of Numbers. Two implications, just very quickly here. When the going gets tough, persevere. We should persevere. In marriage, in the church, in the race towards holiness, all these things. God promised that He would finish the work that He began. And you, if you give up on the race, then it never was a work that God began. 
But understand that if it is a work of God, that we, by His power, will persevere to the end. But understand, we're only able to persevere by the grace of God. It's not by doing everything right. I want you to hear me. It's not by fulfilling the law. We will all fail. It's by the grace of God. It's by Jesus who fulfilled the law. He lived that life that we could not live. And now by grace of God, we can live and delight in Him in such a way that we live by His standards and His life of pursuing holiness. Second implication is that God's endurance or God's perseverance is endless. And praise God, right? Praise God. Guys, let me encourage us here. Look, He can make good of any mess that you have or will ever make. He can make good of any mess that you have made or will ever make. Many of us wonder how God could ever use us or how He could ever fix the mistakes that we've made. But I want to encourage you to trust God. God can use you still to build His kingdom. God can still do that. How do we know that? From everything that we've seen in the book of Numbers so far. Everything we talked about today. And God continues to persevere with His people. If you're a one of His people, He will persevere with you. I want to tell you something Mark Dever said, Pastor Mark Dever said. Understand that sometimes life feels like a walk in the wilderness. But just like the Israelites, the wilderness is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Right? Our home is rest in the Father. Our home is peace in Christ. Our home is hope that He will return. That's our home. So in the meantime, we must run the race with endurance, living faithfully, bringing honor to our King, understanding that we are doing all of that by the grace of God. And when we fail, we don't take off running trying to fix it ourselves. When we fail, we turn to Him and say, God, forgive me. Help me to fix this. Fix this in me. Let's move forward. So I want to pray for us as we continue in worship this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness of your word. Father, I pray that your people are encouraged. I pray that, that they are finding their delight in the Lord and their refuge in the saving work of your Son. And Father, I, I know that, uh, uh, that life is challenging. I know that there's trials of surrounding us every which way we look. And, and Father, I know many of us are held captive by the sin of our past. And Father, I pray that you would encourage them by showing them that they have been set free from their sin. That Father, that, uh, that Jesus came that we would be slaves to righteousness. Father, that, that you can use us. Father, that you will use us. There is nothing that you can't use for your glory. There is nothing that you don't use for your glory. And Father, I, lastly, I want to encourage us that 
that you're a God who perseveres. That you're a God that doesn't give up. That you're a God that will finish what you started. And Father, we can look to that. That tomorrow when I fail or in ten minutes when I heart lust or I sin. Father, we know that if you began a work in us, that if we are truly redeemed, that you will continue that work. That you will persevere in our lives. And Father, that you have not say to us to hell with you. But instead, you say, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my child, and I love you. I died for you, I am walking with you, I will persevere with you. Come walk by my side, come sit on my lap, come walk next to me. Father, you are so good to us. Uh, Let our hearts persevere. Why? Because if our hearts have been made a new creation, if we are made a new creation with new hearts, and these hearts are being made into the likeness of Christ, Christ persevered, and so we must persevere. So Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And it's in your Son's most wonderful name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us this morning?